Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all heard the saying, we live in two different Americas. At times, it's used to illustrate the great divide between Democrats and Republicans. At other times, it's used to shed light on the contrasting realities of the rich and the poor. However, nowhere is this saying truer than when illuminating the priorities of white America versus those of black America. The John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act remains unpassed by the Senate. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021 remains unpassed by Congress. Student loan payments are set to resume in the spring of this year. These are just some of the many issues that are of particular interest to black Americans. And while the president's State of the Union address speaks to the past accomplishments, current standing, and future goals of his administration in the United States, some of the issues important to our people end up as little more than a footnote on the pages meant to address America as a whole. To remedy this, we are joined by former mayor of New Orleans and current president and CEO of the Urban League, Mark Morial. Mr. Morial is charged with delivering the state of black America an annual report published by the Urban League. This is Our Daily Story, and I am your host, Ramses Ja. Talk to us about where we stand as far as voting rights and what we can do to ensure that our votes are counted. The deep sea is closer than you think at Monterey Bay Aquarium. Into the Deep, Exploring Our Undiscovered Ocean, open Saturday, April 9th. This new exhibit will give you the experience of descending from the ocean surface through the dark abyss to the seafloor, and a rare look at the animals that thrive in the depths. Into the Deep features species displayed for the first time anywhere. Some, so new to science, they have yet to be named. Don't miss it. Buy tickets and reserve your day at MontereyBayAquarium.org. Thank you for the question. Our democracy is under threat. Our voting rights are under threat because there's a concerted effort uh, from forces on the right to simply make it more difficult by using state laws Mm. for people to vote. It's targeted at black voters, Latino voters, disabled voters. Uh, It's targeted at voters who Uh, have uh, gotten used to voting by mail or early voting. All of these are efforts to make it more difficult for people to vote. Uh, I believe it's racially and politically motivated, targeted at African-Americans and Latinos and also disabled. It's targeted in many places at young voters and some, in many cases, indige- indigenous and Native American voters. If you look at the laws, and we're talking about proposed laws or laws that have been passed in some 40 plus states in the United States, uh, these laws are designed to suppress voter turnout. These are people who do not want tens of millions of Americans to vote. They want to suppress voter turnout and they've posited, promoted, used fake arguments, fabrications and lies 
regarding the integrity of voting to support these efforts. Now, to stop this, we need Congress to step in. And as you know, we passed through the Congress, through the House of Representatives, two bills which would have stopped much of this voter suppression in its tracks. But those bills did not uh, pass the United States Senate because of the filibuster. Right. And this is the state of play. It's an attack on American democracy. It is those who may not have liked the fact that we had record voter turnout in the 2020 election, the highest voter turnout in American history. 70% of the people who voted used early voting or vote by mail or absentee voting to vote. We had an error-free election for the most part. Uh, and those that didn't like the outcome, didn't like the turnout, are the same folks who were behind the January 6th insurrection and coup. Mm. It's the same folks who are promoting these voter suppression laws. So democracy is a foundation of this country. It means we can all participate in electing the people who make the rules by which we live. And when you cut back on democracy, you end up with autocracy. And we're seeing autocracy in action right now in right. Russia. We're seeing an autocratic leader named Vladimir Putin without a vote, without any consent of his people, uh, invading a sovereign neighbor nation that is a democratic nation. So we need to understand that this movement to undercut democracy is a global movement. It has global implications. But here in the United States, it's targeted at black voters, brown voters, disabled voters, young voters, indigenous voters who have voted in the 2020 election in a coalition which ended the presidency of the 45th president of the United States. Wow. Very good. I appreciate the answer. Um, now, as we mentioned a little earlier, policing reform has encountered some setbacks. What is the current state of our national police reform initiative? So right now we have, and let me, let me kind of break it down into several elements. Right now we do have, a United States Department of Justice, which is serious about police accountability. They've secured in the last uh, week and a half two hate crime convictions mm. against vigilantes in the case of Ahmaud Arbery and police officers in the case of the three uh, in Minneapolis who were part of the murder of George Floyd. Right. So we have a strong, committed, Department of Justice and a civil rights division led uh, by one of the nation's most prominent civil rights lawyers, Kristen Clark. That's positive. We have efforts underway in many local communities to reform policing. What is missing, and it's the same thing, a federal law that would give those who are victims of police brutality stronger rights and also give prosecutors at the federal level a stronger hand in holding police accountable in both the criminal and civil justice systems. What happened to that bill? It passed the House of Representatives twice. Once again, 
the United States Senate and its filibuster mm. prevented the bill from becoming law. President Biden committed to sign these bills, the policing bill and the voting rights bills, but they have been stopped in their tracks by the Senate filibuster and by the recalcitrance of the United States Senate to even allow these bills to be voted on on the merits on the floor of the United States Senate. So I believe that in talking about this, we need to be absolutely accurate that these bills passed the House of Representatives. The president was committed to and prepared to sign it, and it didn't pass the United States Senate because of the filibuster. The filibuster, which was the enemy of civil rights in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, has emerged as the tool of those who do not want to see progress on civil rights and racial justice in this country. The filibuster is their tool. Understood. So moving to student loan debt, regardless of the incomes that people make after graduation, black households carry more student debt, which pushes down their credit worthiness. What is the latest on the fight to cancel student loan debt? Uh, I know that the president has recently canceled some student debt. I think one of the questions is how far can the president go on his own Mm. in canceling student debt versus versus the need for the Congress of the United States to, in effect, pass student debt? And I think we face the same set of problems, same set of political issues, and that is uh, the Senate filibuster. Uh, and the unwillingness of some to go along with the cancellation or the reduction of student debt. Some of the issues that have emerged is whether student debt should be canceled for the children of wealthy parents or whether student debt should be canceled for people who are now making significant sums of money and whether the focus should be on those whose families do not have resources and, and do not have money. So there's the idea of canceling all student debt, there are ideas out there to cancel partial student debt. But the truth is, is to do something significant will once again require votes in the Congress of the United States. And I, I really think that people need to understand sometimes in many discussions, I hear people suggesting that on voting rights or policing that the president on his own can fix these problems. We're in a constitutional democracy. As powerful as the presidency is, this is not Russia or China, where the president can rule, legislate by decree. And this is why we have to make sure that when we think about voting, we can't just vote for president. We have to vote for the Senate, for the House, for legislators, for mayors. We have to maximize our power maximize our impact, maximize our influence across the board if our agenda is going to be fulfilled. Having said that, student debt is one of the huge barriers to African-American homeownership. And we not only have to address the issue of student debt, we have to address the issue of college affordability. Because if we cancel student debt but don't do anything going forward to make college more affordable, we will have another generation 
with the same or even more student debt in the future. This is a complex problem. I believe that it shouldn't be so expensive to get a higher education. A hundred plus years ago, the United States made great strides by making K through 12 free. If you go back to the 17 and 1800s, there were no public schools. Those that got educated went to private academies, had private tours, and were, if you will, the children of the wealthy. In the 1900s, uh, when there was a free a public school movement in the country, we made great progress, even though we have an inequitable education system. We created something fundamental. We need to create a right, not just a community college, but a right to a four-year college degree. And we need to find a way to make it affordable and available, and I think ideally free for those who cannot afford to pay tuition. Understood. With Bloomberg's global news coverage, you will get inspiration to feed your ambition. You will shed light on dark matter with insights that shift your perspective. You will turn 5G up to 11 with our in-depth analysis. You will bridge the gender pay gap by turning data into action. So before you invent, pioneer, disrupt. Before you change the world, Bloomberg. Discover more at Bloomberg.com slash you will. Here with us discussing the state of our black union is our guest, president and CEO of the Urban League, Mark Morial. Now, with names like Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend Jesse Jackson, those are folks who have fought for black people for decades. And as we know, no one can fight forever. Along with yourself, who are some of the new leaders in the charge for civil rights? I think that there are many. I think that Reverend Sharpton and Reverend Jackson have been preeminent in their visibility. Mm. And I think there have been for years many, many civil rights leaders who may not be as visible on the national stage as Reverend Sharpton or Reverend Jackson or others who have played a significant role along the way, right? Uh, they may not be household names, but sure. they may be household names in a particular city or in a particular jurisdiction. I think there are many, many new leaders out there. Uh, amongst uh, historic civil rights organizations, uh, we have many, many new generation local leaders. Okay. Presidents of urban leagues in places like Louisville and Charlotte and New Orleans and uh, and uh, uh, Atlanta and uh, Baltimore, uh, they are not national figures, but they're significant voices for civil rights at the local level. So I think that there are many. And I also think our leadership community is far more varied. We have activists. We have elected officials. We have people that lead civil rights organizations. I think you have a whole new generation of people who are influencers in social media, sure. uh, who bring their voice and bring the voice of civil rights out there. I hesitate to begin naming names because I may forget a few here <laughs> or a few there. But I do think that Reverend Jackson uh, and Reverend Sharpton, and one thing that we can take away from them is that they have been lifelong fighters. Reverend Jackson and Reverend Sharpton, for example, didn't become who they were overnight. 
Uh, they were in the crucible on the front lines in the case of Reverend Jackson, all the way back to the 60s. In the case of Reverend Jackson, a historic race for presidency uh, in the 1980s. In the case of Reverend Sharpton, alongside Reverend Jackson, and then doing important work as an activist here in New York City. Uh, and, and it takes a long time for people to emerge, right, at a national level. You know, I am proud to be able to work with them. And in the case of Reverend Jackson, to have been a Jesse Jackson delegate when I was a very, very young person in my 20s, mm. uh, when he ran for president of the United States. In the case of Reverend Sharpton, uh, he and I worked very closely together on a range of issues. I think what I hope is that we recognize as new generations of leaders emerge that we do not fall into the trap of believing that there's some sort of generational battle to see who's king of the hill, right? right. Uh, that to me is a, is, a, is, a, is a destructive mindset. And sometimes the media will promote who's the most preeminent uh, black leader. Well, no one says who's the most preeminent Italian leader or the most preeminent Jewish leader, right? Or the right. most, uh, you know, preeminent uh, 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 labor leader, right? We have, I think today, an orchestra of people, right, who work on behalf of equity and racial justice and civil rights all the time. And I do think in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin uh, Michael Brown, all the way through. I think a new generation, and I think the generation has emerged uh, with a commitment to activism and civic engagement around the issues of racial justice, equity, and civil rights. Very good. Now, keeping in that same vein, uh, under your leadership, describe how the Urban League is working to continue to provide economic empowerment educational opportunities, and the guarantee of civil rights for the underserved in America. I want everyone who's listening to understand the unique role of the National Urban League. What is unique about us? Uh, we are the only historic civil rights organization that for now 100 plus years has done direct programs in urban communities. We have job training, after school, early childhood, home buyer education, small business assistance. It's an important part of what we do that is unique. But in addition to that, we're an advocate. Uh, we're an advocate on issues of civil rights and economic empowerment. So I think more than any other organization in the civil rights community, we speak for economic empowerment and economic justice. We're on the front lines battling the wealth gap. We're the front lines pushing for home ownership, for better pay, for better wages, for better, uh, uh, if you will, opportunities for our businesses to grow. So we are unique and civil rights organizations. Some people say, well, what's the difference between or what's alike? What's alike is we're bound by mission. Mm -hmm. And like the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and the Marines, they're bound together by mission. But the work they do may be different. Uh, and in the civil rights community, that's our philosophy. It's a, a philosophy of operational unity, but not unanimity. Okay. So we respect 
differences. We respect the different different type of work we do, the lanes we look. Black America is almost 50 million people, large enough to be a nation within a nation. Black America and Latinos are over 100 million people. When you include all our allies, you're talking about, you know, over 100 million people who we think want a more just and equitable nation. Sure. Uh, and we seek to coalition build, uh, collaborate, uh, mobilize, uh, work within the system, sometimes put pressure on the outside of the system. That's the Urban League today. I've worked to change and transform the National Urban League, build on our past, but make us much more, uh, I think, uh, uh, built to deal with the needs of today. Got it. So how can people listening today, how can they support the Urban League's mission? So you can become a member by joining an Urban League affiliate in your community. You can join in our online community by going to www.nul.org and signing up for free to be part of our digital community, our online community. You can become part of our social media community by following us at Nat Urban League or following me at Mark Moria to be part of this continuous conversation uh, about civil rights, racial justice, and economic empowerment. So we encourage people uh, to be involved in our work, to be a part of the Urban League, but we encourage people to, on a larger basis, to be involved in community, to be voters, to be voices, to have an opinion that's informed and educated about the issues that affect our community, to be in that debate, to be in that discussion, to be active and involved. We all a part of this work and we're all a part of this fight. And the biggest enemy we face is the enemy of complacency, mm. uh, the enemy of, of uh, dejection. We have no time for that. Well said. Well, thank you very much for your time and for your insight. Uh, once again, today's guest is Mark Morio, the president and the CEO of the Urban League. Thanks again. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate you and keep up the good work. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Anita Hill. You probably know me or think you do. I've learned firsthand about our country's shortcomings. And despite it all, I still believe we can solve society's biggest problems. My new podcast, Getting Even, is about equality and what it takes to get there. Listen to Getting Even on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's important to know where we stand. It's important that we identify the work we have to do to further define our rights as citizens in this country, to protect the lives and liberties of ourselves and our posterity, to create the realities we wish to see for our people. We all have a role to play in each other's futures, and the first step is to become engaged. But that is far from the goal. It is up to us to organize within our communities. It is incumbent upon us to demand proper representation. Our responsibility to our people is to affirm our humanity now and forever, loudly and proudly. Our responsibility is to assert the equality afforded to us under the laws of this country. Our responsibility is to pursue our version of the American dream. 
As we do this, perhaps we will further close the gap between our two different Americas and truly become one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This has been a production of the Black Information Network. Today's show was produced by Chris Thompson. Follow us on all social media at Our Daily Story. I am your host, Ramses Ja. Join us tomorrow as we share our news with our voice from our perspective, right here on Our Daily Story.